Some people did say no to that offer. One woman who I had interviewed said it felt like a jail cell without cuffs. One outreach worker told me, you know, the rules were just too much for them to deal with, that they didn't want to be treated like children. Others, you know, were kicked out, and, you know, some who I interviewed went back to sleeping in their cars or sleeping outside. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. Last spring, in the midst of the pandemic, St. Louis city officials cleared two downtown homeless encampments. They relocated residents to temporary shelters across the city. Those shelters included hotel and apartment buildings. Now, the clearances were reported at the time, including on this show. But only now is the full impact of that decision becoming clear. And that's thanks to an investigative piece published this morning by St. Louis Public Radio reporter Shayla Farzan in collaboration with APM reports uh, that has aired on the station. You can also find it on our website. And Shayla joins us right now to talk about it. So Shayla, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. So take us back to last April. What reason did the city give for breaking up these homeless camps? Well, you know, from the beginning and even to this day, city officials say that the downtown camps were a threat to public health, that people were living too close together, they weren't social distancing, and that could help spread the coronavirus, possibly seed future outbreaks. Mayor Krusen at one point uh, during a press conference last spring had called the camps a high-risk health situation, and Mm -hmm. she pointed out that living in a tent does go against city ordinances. But when I went back for this story and interviewed some representatives from her office, they told me it was more than that, that those camps were unsanitary. There were things like rats and discarded food and feces. And so they actually called it a public health nuisance at those camps. Hmm. But on the other hand, you know, I had also interviewed um, a number of advocates, outreach workers, people, some, some people who had lived at those camps. And they said, you know, that was actually kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the city didn't provide enough services for people at those camps like porta-potties and trash bins. Um, so, I, you know, I think that there are kind of two sides to it. Hmm. So the city broke up these two camps. Did the residents have much say where they ended up if, if they decided to avail themselves of the options provided by the city? Yeah, it seems to have varied somewhat from person to person. But In general, camp residents told me that they were given the choice between a hotel shelter room and a more kind of traditional group shelter. Um, And one thing that I I do really want to stress here is that it was a choice, that no one was forced to go into one of these hotel rooms. Some people did say no to that offer and they, you know, decided to stay outside. They formed new encampments and other locations. They moved into vacant buildings. But, you know, as far as kind of these specific hotel locations that we focused on for this investigation, Mm -hmm. um, there were three main ones. There was the Red Roof Inn, which is off of Interstate 44 in St. Louis. Um, There's the Mark Twain Hotel, which is actually a low-income apartment building downtown. 
And then there's also the Western Inn and North City. And there were some rooms at a converted convent called Little Sisters of the Poor. But for this story, we really focused on those first three. So, Shayla, a hotel room sounds better to me than life on the streets. Where's the rub for the people who were involved in this situation? Right. Yeah. I mean, some of the people that I interviewed who stayed at these hotels said it was a relief at first, you know, having your own space. Um, not having to be wet or cold, just being able to take a shower. Mm-hmm. And I think at first, um, you know, they, they they really enjoyed those spaces. And, um, of course, every person's experience is going to be a little different, and it's going to depend somewhat on which hotel or apartment building they were staying at because they were all a little different. But from the half dozen or so residents who I spoke with for this story who had stayed at these hotels, they said, you know, the longer that they stayed – the more issues they started running into. And some of those issues had to deal with um, the violence and crime that they experienced and witnessed there. Mm. And in other cases, it was kind of a a little more nuanced than that. So tell us a little bit about some of these more nuanced issues. I mean, in some cases, you know, if people are being violently assaulted, that's pretty clear cut. But but what else were they having to deal with at, at some of these sites? Right. Yeah. So I think one of the big issues were the restrictions that were placed on them. So I think You know, any shelter environment is going to have pretty specific rules. Um, And that was the case at at these hotel shelters as well. Um, What was interesting for me as I was, you know, going through this investigation was I learned that you had building owners who were negotiating with the city. So, you know, hotel owners um, and making their own set of rules. And then you also had the organization, some of the nonprofits that were on the ground, you know, running these hotel spaces and providing case management. And they also had their own set of rules. So, um, for instance, I mean, at the Red Roof Inn, there was a no alcohol policy. Mm. They were uh, staff were allowed to you know, enter rooms as needed and do room searches. At the Mark Twain, there was a requirement written into the lease that residents, hotel shelter residents, dress appropriately in common areas. And what I was hearing from, you know, people who had stayed at these spaces and also from outreach workers was that these rules were pretty restrictive and they were also, you know, borderline intrusive for them. I think one woman who I had interviewed said it felt like a jail cell without cuffs. Mm. Um, and I, you know, I had even spoken with one um, civil rights attorney who represented people staying in these hotels. And he told me that the vast majority of his clients that he had represented were kicked out of these hotels in a matter of days for rule violations. And so did they end up just then back on the street, just different streets? It seems to be that way for for most people. So some people left voluntarily from these spaces. Um, One outreach worker told me, you know, the rules were just too much for them to deal with, that they didn't want to be treated like children. Um, So they decided to leave. Others, you know, were kicked out. And, you know, some who I interviewed went back to sleeping in their cars or sleeping outside. Hmm. So one of the people you talked to was Marcus Hunt. He was the mayor of one of these downtown encampments. And um, from your reporting, he's now back on the streets. He told you this. It's almost like watching your house burn down over and over again. We've given them this community to belong to. We've given them the semblance of safety just to take it from them. 
That is Marcus Hunt. It sounds like he's feeling some frustration that things would have been better had they been allowed to stay in this camp. Is that your takeaway from all the months you put into talking to people on on different sides of this issue? You know, I think that that was Marcus's opinion. I mean, that's something that we've kind of continued to see throughout this pandemic is, um, you know, sort of this the cycle being perpetuated over and over again, where we have cities, not just St. Louis, but nationwide, clearing encampments, um, kind of moving people out of these centralized locations. And I think what Marcus is referring to in that quote during that interview is that it's been really difficult and it's been really frustrating to watch that happen over and over again, because, you know, for him, these camps are not just uh, a hodgepodge of tents thrown together. They're neighborhoods, they're communities. Um, he I mean, you had mentioned he was elected or selected by residents to serve as the mayor. But mm-hmm. he also told me, you know, we had a treasurer, we had a security team. And um, and so I think that what he was really stressing there is that these were communities set up during the pandemic to support people. Hmm. So you also talked to the mayor's chief of staff, that's uh, former alderman Steve Conway, and he told you that the city used the spaces that were available to it. We were comfortable with those units that we rented um, to house the people in a way better place, healthier, safer, more sanitary conditions than where they were. That is Steve Conway, Chief of Staff for Mayor Elida Cruz. And overall, do city officials seem to think they handled this appropriately? I think they do. Um, so basically, in, during one of my interviews with Steve Conway and some other representatives from Mayor Elida Cruz's office, um, you know, I asked them pretty much that question, you know, given that the the early days of the pandemic were pretty chaotic, you know, officials in a lot of different cities, not just St. Louis, were making decisions really quickly. I wondered now, okay, with the benefit of hindsight, are there things they would have done differently? Are they happy with the way this program turned out? Um, And Conway said no. You know, he couldn't think of anything that he would have changed. And he called the program an incredible success. Hmm. And the city spent a fair amount of money on this. I think it's worth noting, not that it's bad to spend money on this, but if the net result is people end up back on the street, it it does raise some questions. Um, A a significant financial cost to this? Yeah, at this point, it's uh, over $5.7 million. And that's federal funding. So some of it comes through the CARES Act, some from FEMA. And right now, those emergency shelters are the highest individual expenditure that the city has made during the pandemic. Hmm. Well, St. Louis Public Radio reporter Shayla Farzan, there is a lot to digest here, and I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I want to encourage people, you can check out Shayla's report on our website. That's stlpr.org. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. If you learned something new from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.